who haven't seen each other in a long time do. They catch up over coffee. You know, now I don't know if they had coffee. I don't know what, what the, the custom may have been. But they get together and, and they catch up. Paul updates James on all that God has done through him among the Gentiles. And then James, he, he together with the other elders of Jerusalem around him, they update Paul. They share all that God has been doing in Jerusalem. And the gospel has clearly been making inroads. This is a moment of, that should be a moment of just true joy. And we're going to see just how messed up the church can be where we can't even rejoice in a true work of God among us. Because the gospel is clearly working among the Gentiles. Paul shares all that God has done. Listen to all the stories of conversion. All of these people are coming to faith. These churches have been planted in all these regions. It's amazing to see. And then James says, well, listen, there are thousands of Jewish converts here in the city of Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing that the Lord has been working in this way? The gospel is making inroads in Gentile regions, in Jewish regions. Thousands of Gentiles, thousands of Jews are coming to faith in Jesus. This should be nothing more than a moment of pure joy and praise of the Lord. But there's an elephant in the room. There is tension that you could cut with a knife after they catch up on all that God is doing, James lets Paul know about the situation in Jerusalem. A rumor has spread. Aren't churches great at rumors? <laughs> Aren't we great at that? It's, it's almost like it's a spiritual gift for some. It's like, um, I mean, this really feels like that Paul is just a missionary coming back and visiting a Baptist church, you know? And it's like, hey, listen, that's great. We're so glad to hear all that God's doing. Now listen, in the Sunday schools, um, there's a rumor that's been spreading. I need to let you know about it. Okay, I mean, it, it, it's, this is what's happening. A rumor has spread that Paul has been teaching Jewish Christians living in Gentile regions to completely disregard the law of Moses. Now, this rumor was deeply concerning to the thousands of new Jewish converts in, in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to see, Paul has a new enemy here, and, and his enemy is within Okay, so in the past, and all these other places he's gone, he has, run, he has had run-ins with the Jews. The Jews are very upset with Paul because he, he's teaching something completely new, and they are refusing to see Jesus as the Messiah. Now he's running into trouble with people who are acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. These are not just Jews. These are Jewish Christians that are very upset that Paul, that, at this rumor that Paul is teaching Jews to disregard the law of Moses. Now listen, it was probably also concerning to James. James and the other elders, we're not told here, but they probably also want to hear Paul out because they, they would be concerned. And this rumor is concerning for three reasons. First, if this rumor is true, then Paul has clearly crossed the line. Teaching Jews that they have to forsake their customs teaching Jews that they need to forsake the law of Moses altogether, teaching them actively that they would be in disobedience to the Lord, that they cannot follow Jesus if they circumcise their children, is, is going a little too far. That, that is very different from teaching Gentiles that they do not have to change their cultural customs. They do not have to become culturally Jewish. They don't have to circumcise their children or be circumcised themselves in order to belong. That's, that's very different. So if, if it's true that, that Paul is actually teaching, you can just forget about Moses. You know those first five books, just take them, cut them out of your Bible, you don't need them anymore. He has crossed the line if he's actually done it, so it's concerning. Second, 
The rumor itself, whether true or false, put Paul's life at risk. The Jewish Christians were told are zealous for the law, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. They were livid, okay? James was concerned that a riot would break out, similar to the ones that Paul had faced in Asia. Now, and third and finally, this rumor greatly threatened the unity of the church. There would be, there is no hope for unity between Gentile and Jewish Christians if this rumor is true. If the person who has been tasked with taking the gospel to the Gentiles is teaching Jews in that region that they can disregard the law of Moses, there is little to no hope of unity in the church. So we have a real problem here. What needs to be done? Well, with the problem in clear view, James and the other elders, they suggest a solution. And there just so happened to be four men who had taken a vow. And this vow that they had taken required them to purify themselves, make sacrifices in the temple, and shave their heads. Now, with all these clues, it probably means that this was a Nazarite vow. Now, a Nazarite vow is described in Numbers 6. I'm not going to encourage you to turn there now, but just make a note of that. You can turn to Numbers 6 sometimes later in the day, and we have a Nazarite vow uh, pretty clearly outlined what, what that entails. Basically, this was a purification vow. It was, it was taken usually for a specified period of time. Uh, Paul is actually going to enter into a Nazarite vow for seven days, so it was usually a specified period of time. Um, under the vow, the person had to abstain from all wine and anything else that was made from grapes. They had to refrain from cutting their hair. They had to let their hair grow. And they had to avoid corpses or, or graves. So no funerals, um, um, no barbers, and no liquor stores, okay? Um, it, was, uh, it actually reminded me of COVID, you know? It's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. No, funer- no funerals, couldn't get a haircut. Um, yeah, yeah, um, no liquor stores. I'm, I'm a Baptist, though, um, so maybe that's not... One-third Baptist, basically, here, okay? Um, after these requirements were met, for that designated period of time, the person, they had to make three offerings... Okay, so they would go to the temple, they make three offerings, they bring a lamb as a burnt offering, they bring a ewe as a sin offering, they bring a ram as a peace offering, and with the ram they bring a grain offering. So they bring all this stuff to the temple, and then after all of that, they would shave their heads in the outer courtyard of the temple. So you got all that, Nazarite vow, turn to number six sometime and, and catch up on it. Now these vows were taken usually for the purpose of dedicating yourself in a very physical way, a demonstrable way, dedicating yourself as holy or set apart before the Lord. It was a ritual that helped demonstrate that you are set apart for the Lord's purposes. James and the other elders, they ask Paul to purify himself along with the four men who were already under this vow. Now, why, why this was the, the answer of the possible solution, we're not 100% sure. Um, one possibility, and this is where it gets a little shady, or it feels a little shady, one possibility is that Paul has just come from Gentile lands. He has come from Gentile regions. And so the people there are, are already upset with Paul, and they could, they could view him as being unclean from having come from these regions. So they're like, okay, enter this purification vow, and maybe that will, will take care of some of this. Um, now, after, after meeting these requirements, James asked Paul to not only take the vow himself, meet the requirements himself, but also to pay all the expenses 
for the haircuts, for the sacrifices, uh, for himself and for these men. It was, it was a very expensive vow that Paul was going to have to take because he's not only paying for himself, he's paying for four other men to have these sacrifices made and um, to, to have, have their haircut. Now, James hoped that if Paul demonstrated a willingness to follow a custom found in the law, you see his, his logic here, if Paul shows up and he goes through with this Nazarite vow, and not only that, but he pays for four other guys to go through it as well, how could anyone say that Paul doesn't care about Moses or the law of Moses or something that's found in it? He is participating in one of our customs. And he says here, thus all will know that there is nothing what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, we don't receive any dialogue from Paul, but Luke tells us that Paul did what James asked. He purified himself. He went into the temple. He let them know when his ritual would be complete, seven days, and he presented offerings for each of the men under the vow. Now, here's all I want to do. I want to make two observations about what Paul has done here. So two observations, and this is going to frame the rest of our time together. The first observation is Paul was under no obligation from the law or from the Lord to take this vow. He did not have to do this. Paul was not obligated by the law or the Lord to take this vow. And it's because Jesus has set him free from taking Nazarite vows and from all the other cultural and ritualistic customs of the law. Paul is free. Second observation Paul took the vow anyway. He took the vow anyway. And he took the vow not out of an obligation to the law. He took the vow out of an obligation to love. Love for his Jewish neighbor. So let's think about two things the rest of our time. The privilege of our freedom in Christ and the power of love through Christ. So the privilege of freedom first. This tension in Jerusalem was due to a rumor about Paul's teaching. But really what it was, is it was a direct result of Jewish Christians misinterpreting or misunderstanding Paul's teaching on Christian freedom. Honestly, this whole scene just feels like Christian Twitter. It just feels like Christian Twitter. Just people constantly misrepresenting each other, constantly misunderstanding, and then drawing these insane, strong conclusions about people that they barely even know. It, it really just feels like Christian Twitter. The, the Jews, they, they took Paul's teaching on Christian freedom to mean that the law of Moses could be disregarded entirely. And now they believed that Paul's freedom in Christ meant that Jewish Christians had to stop following the cultural customs found in the law or they couldn't be Christians. It, it, it's ridiculous. First of all, what we need to see is that the rumor, as stated, is simply untrue. It's, it's just simply not true, as, the rumor as stated. Paul never once, we never see him in the book of Acts, we never see him in any of his writings, we never see him teach Jews that they must not circumcise their children or follow the customs found in the law of Moses in order to be Christians. That, that is not found anywhere in his teaching. Not once. This is at best a very uncharitable interpretation of Paul's teaching on a Christian's new relationship to the law. You see, Paul taught that faith in Jesus leads to freedom in Jesus. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has set us free from the law. But in what sense? 
That, that's what's really important here. You see, Paul's gospel included the implication that Jesus has set us free from the law in this way. He has set us free from relating to God on the basis of our obedience to the law. We no longer relate to God, have a relationship with him, or find favor with him through our obedience to the law, through our active covenant keeping. That, that is no longer true with the coming of Jesus. So, Gentiles then were not required to become culturally Jewish or to keep the law in order to be Christian. They weren't required to circumcise their children. They weren't required to be circumcised in order to belong to the eternal people of God. Here's what happens when you believe in Jesus. When you first believe in Jesus, you are granted immediately an immense privilege. You are released from spiritual slavery. Think about it. If, if you have to relate to God on the basis, the grounds for your belonging with God is your obedience to the law, something that you cannot do, you are in bondage. And you're in bondage because you're not capable of keeping the law. You know, um, as a kid, I went to tons of Kentucky basketball games. And if you're not familiar with K Kentucky basketball, it is very, very difficult to get tickets to a Kentucky basketball game at Rupp Arena in Lexington. It is downright impossible to get lower level tickets at Rupp Arena because they are season tickets and those season ticket holders hold onto those tickets for dear life. Um, my grandfather actually uh, got in on the ground floor. When Rupp Arena was built, he was able to get in on season tickets. So he's had se season tickets this entire time. I have been able to get in to so many uh, Kentucky basketball games throughout my life, and I've never paid a dime. My parents never paid a dime. I saw so many Kentucky basketball games growing up for free. Um, now, I got in on it. I got to enjoy the benefits of watching a Kentucky basketball game for free. My getting in for free does not nullify the importance of the booster club, right? Okay, the booster club still has to be paid. The booster club is really important. The booster club does tons of stuff. There were so many requirements that had to be met in order for you to have season tickets to be able to watch Kentucky basketball games. So many requirements had to be met. I, I didn't meet a single one of them. And I got to enjoy the benefits of it. That doesn't nullify the importance of the requirements. The reason I got the benefit is because my grandfather paid. My, my grandfather met the requirements. And because he met the requirements, I got to go along with him. You see, our debt has been paid by another. We get to enjoy the benefits of Christian freedom. We get to enjoy the benefits of full access to God. We get to enjoy the benefits of being a part of the eternal people of God not out of our meeting the requirements within the law, but because we are united to one who has met the requirements. That's what Paul was teaching. Not that the law can be disregarded, but that the law cannot be met by us, and we are free from trying to relate to God on the basis of meeting those requirements. That it's through Jesus that we belong. You see, in order to set us free from the law, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law in his righteous life. So the law isn't forsaken, it's fulfilled. And then Jesus suffered the curse of the law, not because he was a lawbreaker, but because he stood in the place of lawbreakers like us. 
And then Jesus was raised from the dead as vindication of his work for us. You see, the privilege of Christian freedom is that Jesus has set us free from relying on the law or our own righteousness as a means of salvation. Jesus has set us free from the yoke of legalism and from works-based righteousness. He has set us free from the fear that one wrong move is going to cause you to lose God's love. Jesus has set us free from a guilt-ridden conscience and from alienation. He set us free from feeling like we have to follow certain rules or obey God in order for God to be pleased with us or to love us. We belong to the people of God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, not our own. And there's freedom in that. In Christ, we are set free. Now, two things that this freedom does not mean and, and it would be so easy to misconstrue and misunderstand just like the Jews did, but we need to make sure we don't. First, Christian freedom does not mean that we are now free to live however we want. Jesus is our liberator, but he's also our Lord. So we submit to his authority as we enjoy his freedom. And no one has put this better that I've seen than Carl Ellis. Carl Ellis, writing about uh, human freedom, he said, human freedom is derived from God's lordship and it's not independent of it. For by definition, nothing can be outside God's sovereignty. Freedom is being under the right authority. To rebel against God's lordship is to rebel against our own human freedom. You see, we still obey God, but our motivation for obeying God has changed. We no longer obey God in order to be accepted. We obey God because we are accepted. And we just want to get on with the program of the new humanity, which leads to the second thing we need to be sure about Christian freedom. Christian freedom also does not mean that we have been set free to just become better versions of ourselves. That, that's not the point of Christian freedom. We, we have been set free to become something new. We haven't, we haven't just been set free to, to, okay, now we're free, so now we can just obey you know, better than we could before. No, we've become something new. C.S. Lewis, this beautiful illustration in Mere Christianity. He, he offers this, this amazing picture uh, to illustrate spiritual freedom. He wrote, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. Now, now here's the illustration. He says, it is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better. It's like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences, which, it could, never have, which could never have been jumped, and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. This is Christian freedom. We have been set free from relating to God through obedience so that we can become something entirely new by relating to God on the basis of his grace. You see, the free grace of God that's extended to us in Christ and our reception of that grace by simple faith makes us finally and fully alive. It makes us into something new. Freedom is the essence of the new humanity in Jesus. So it's not that we have gone from being a lawbreaker to a law keeper. We've not just become a stronger and faster horse. We have gone from being a horse to an eagle. We have gone from being a lawbreaker to a beloved son 
or daughter of God. Only Jesus could do this. He has set us free to become new men and new women that no longer wonder if God loves us today. And we no longer try to obey so that we can be good enough to be accepted by God. No, we no longer have to fit any cultural mold in order to truly belong. Christ has set us free. And so instead of every single day trying to make sure that we fall within the lines of the law, he has set us free from the law, meaning that he has written his law on our hearts. So instead of loving others because God says so, we love others because we have a new disposition within our hearts toward God and other people. This is what Paul was teaching. Not that Moses should be forgotten, but that in Jesus something new and better has come. He doesn't disregard the law. He teaches that Christ has fulfilled the law. He doesn't want to bind the conscience of the Jews to renounce their customs. Instead, he wants to free the Gentiles from the law's bondage. Through Jesus, Paul is free. And you are free. And there was nothing within the law that was forcing Paul or compelling Paul to take this vow. So then why did he do it? Why did Paul follow a ritual from which he had been set free? And this is where we see the power of love. You see, in light of, of this freedom that Paul taught about and that he, he embodied, that he lived out, we need to consider his actions in Jerusalem because they're potentially concerning. You see, Paul follows through with this request from James. He took the Nazarite vow, he paid the expenses of the others under the vow, and he brought the offerings to the temple. And he did it with the hope that it would prove he actually cared about the law of Moses. Two questions. Were Paul's actions sinful? Was it, was it wrong for Paul to do what he did? Because Paul's not Jesus, he sins, okay? And question number two, why, why did he do it? Well, first, were his actions sinful? Paul's theology of freedom, at minimum, makes his actions surprising and, and maybe concerning at worst. In fact, as I was studying this week, scholars are divided on their interpretations of the legitimacy of Paul's actions here. Some scholars believe that Paul actually did cross a line, that he was in error to take this vow. That they actually believe that he's behaving very hypocritically. Because his actions don't seem to line up with his teachings. And they think that he, he may even be violating his own teachings. And, and I understand this concern a little bit. Because in Galatians 5, Paul wrote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then here we have him in Jerusalem. And it, it doesn't look like he's standing firm against, against this, this requirement that he follow a part of the law that he has been set free from. It looks like he's submitting again to a yoke of slavery himself. It feels like Paul is caving to bullies. It feels like he's catering to the legalists. You see, the church in Jerusalem was a hot mess. James's comment that the Jewish Christians were zealous for the law takes us back. That's how Paul is described whenever he's murdering Christians, as being zealous for the law. That was Paul's frame of mind. He was zealous. 
Thousands of Jewish converts are zealous for the law. In the same way, it takes you back, if you're familiar, with the story of the Maccabees. The Maccabees were defending Judaism against the, the invading cultural uh, syncretism from, from uh, the Greeks and later the Romans. Um, so th- they were trying to protect the people of Israel from ever being influenced by, by those who were from the outside. And they wanted to defend the law even to the point of death. And so the church in Jerusalem strongly defended Jewish culture and strict adherence to the law, which really demonstrates their spiritual immaturity. They struggled to understand their new relationship to the law in Christ. And so it is baffling to me, first glance, why Paul would tolerate this, why he would cave to these bullies from Jerusalem. At minimum, Paul taking this vow is surprising because of everything we just talked about with Christian freedom. And so what James and the elders are asking Paul to do, I I have to admit, it feels really shady. Hey, listen, they think you don't care about the law, so here's what I want you to do. It almost feels like they're asking him to fake it. Like, hey, go take this vow, and then if they see you publicly following a part of the law, maybe they'll think that you care more about the law than you actually do. It feels like something you'd see in the West Wing or or some some political show or something like that, Not, not in the pages of Scripture. So maybe Paul is wrong. And we need to ask, did he cross the line? Because he's stepping very closely to the line of legalism. Well, let's consider how he took the vow. He's not taking this vow as an addition to the gospel. He's not, he's not taking the vow in order to earn favor or love from God. Neither Paul nor James were compromising an inch on salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. This was not about salvation. This was about cultural customs or religious rituals. In fact, if you actually were following closely in the book of Acts, you actually see Paul take a Nazarite vow in Acts 18. So Nazarite vows may have actually been a part of Paul's own spirituality. Um, this is not an addition to the gospel. From him. In, Luke, in, Luke, or, sorry, in Acts 18, Luke tells us that Paul had to cut his hair because he was under a vow. You see, Paul was truly free. His freedom in Christ was not at odds with the customs within the law of Moses. Paul was also willing to circumcise Timothy. Do you remember that? Shocking. But he, he actually circumcised Timothy for a similar purpose here. You see, these actions of circumcision or or taking a Nazarite vow, they are only problematic if they are done in order to earn salvation from God. That's that's the the way that they're problematic. Um, So I don't believe that Paul was wrong to take this vow, even if the whole situation feels a little shady. And one of the reasons we can say that with confidence is the reason he did it. Why did Paul do this? And what can we learn from it? Why did Paul take a vow and make sacrifices that Jesus had very clearly set him free from taking? You see, his freedom in Christ allowed him to do it. He's free. He's truly free in the truest sense of freedom. He's not disobeying the Lord by making sacrifices and taking this vow because he's not relying on these works for salvation. But more importantly, it's his love. His love for the Jews compelled him to do it. Taking the vow may have eased tensions with Jewish Christians. Taking the vow may have helped him gain the ears of Jewish Christians and other non-Christians in Jerusalem. So although Paul was free from Jewish customs like Nazarite vows, something even more powerful than Christian freedom was motivating his actions. Christian love. 
Our freedom from the law is not greater, nor is it at odds with our love for others. Paul did not take this vow because he was obligated to by the law or the Lord. Christ had set him free. Paul took this vow because he was obligated to love his neighbor. His love for Jewish Christians, lost Jews, the unity of the church, drove him to submit his freedom on the altar of love. So, you see, love for others sometimes leads us to take risks. Paul risked looking absolutely foolish. He risked creating even more misunderstanding. He risked offending Gentile Christians, but his freedom served his love for these Jewish Christians. Our freedom in Christ always goes both ways. We are free from fitting any certain cultural mold, but we are also free to fit certain cultural molds for the sake of reaching others with the gospel. Paul really just seems to be living out a principle he would later teach in his first letter to the Corinthians. He he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And why does he do it, he says? I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That's so powerful. Our freedom in Christ and our love for others work together sometimes in radical ways, sometimes in very sacrificial ways, sometimes in surprising ways to reach those who have yet to believe. And we see Paul's love for the Jews was even deeper than what we can see here. Paul was willing to go even further than following certain Jewish customs to appease the Jews. Paul was even willing to be cut off from Jesus if it meant the salvation of his people. He wrote in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We must be willing to lay down certain freedoms or certain rights that we have in Jesus for the sake of others. I think about um, a couple years ago when, when the pandemic first hit and everybody was confused and, and the, the disease was ravaging our community, lots of communities all over the world, obviously, but, but especially around here. And so many of you were serving in healthcare capacities and saw it firsthand every single day. And it was, it was amazing at the time, especially with no treatments, no vaccines, um, the, only, the only way that, that we had to, to prevent the spread was by distancing ourselves and wearing masks, two things that technically in Christ we are free from actually doing. But you didn't have to wear a mask. You didn't have to wear a mask. You didn't have to do that. No, like, you did not have to, right? The, the, well, we kind of said as a church you had to if you wanted to be in this room, uh, sort of, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, hopefully there's no hard feelings there. Um, but 
You didn't have to. There's nothing you could find in the law, in, in the scriptures that said you had to wear a mask. And yet, compelled by your love for others in this church, compelled by your love for others in our city, you, you did that. Um, another example of this. I, I remember going out to lunch um, with, with a church member one time. Now, this was a couple years ago, I think. It may have been sometime last year. I was dieting at the time. So at that time, I was trying to diet, trying, trying to do it somewhat again. But uh, I, was, I was dieting at the time. And so we went out to lunch, and I ordered a grilled chicken salad. Uh, it, was, uh, it was so hard to do, but I did it. I ordered, ordered a grilled chicken salad, and I had it delivered. I was going to eat it. Now, this member was under no obligation to share in my pain. Okay, no obligation to eat healthy, and this member was not someone who just like like Erica. She loves salads. She's like that's what she eats. You know, she would be sacrificing to eat like a bunch of meat. You know, um, but this this member was not that type. Okay, would would definitely have been cool ordering a cheeseburger. Um, I've seen I've eaten cheeseburgers with this member a lot. Okay, but to honor me, to support me in my healthy eating, he chose to eat a salad with me. And, and it's a small thing, and we, we laughed about it. It's, it's a small thing. But I have to tell you, even though he didn't have to do that, when I, when I heard that he was ordering a salad and then we both ate our salads together, it actually made me feel very loved by that gesture. It increased our unity with one another. Because what he did, even though it was a really small thing, a really small thing, what he did is he counted me more valuable than his own freedom to eat what he wants. He counted me as more valuable. Are other people in this church and are other people in your life, in this city, more valuable to you than your own freedom? That's the question. When we discern how we should live, choices that we make, things that we do, we often ask ourselves if we're permitted to do it. Are we allowed to do this? Would we be disobeying the Lord if we did it? Are we free to do it? And it's, it's a question of freedom. But freedom in Christ can't be our only lens of discernment. Sometimes love requires us to do things that we are technically free from. Or sometimes love requires us to refrain from things that our freedom allows. So again, we, we must never forsake our freedom in Christ in exchange for a yoke of slavery to legalism. But love sometimes obligates us to lay down our rights for the sake of others. Freedom must always submit to love. Um, the renowned Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce, I love how he put this. In commenting on this passage, he said, A truly emancipated spirit is not in bondage to its own emancipation. A, tru a truly free person is not in bondage to his own freedom. We are truly free in Christ to take risks for the sake of love and for the sake of God's glory. So one question as we, as we stop, what is love obligating you to do for someone in your life this year? It may mean laying down certain freedoms, it may mean using your Christian freedom in surprising ways. But what is love obligating you to do for someone in your life this